This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the Music To My Ears podcast brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. We're kicking off the season with a brilliant interview with a comedian, author, screenwriter and host of the award-winning Guilty Feminist podcast, Deborah Francis-White. Started in 2015, the comedy podcast has now gained over 70 million downloads and explores topics related to 21st century feminism and the insecurities and hypocrisies that sometimes exist within them. As well as creating The Guilty Feminist, Deborah has also hosted the Radio 4 series Deborah Francis White Rolls the Dice, in which she told stories about her adoption in Australia and the quest to find her biological family. She's also written a book as a spin-off from the podcast The Guilty Feminist, and in 2019 released her first feature film, Say My Name. A long-time opera lover, Deborah has featured many musicians on the Guilty Feminist podcast over the years, such as sopranos Danielle Denise and Nadine Benjamin, mezzo Jamie Barton, and composer Erilyn Wallen. Our editorial assistant, Freya Parr, spoke to Deborah after the first lockdown was eased from her central home in central London. This podcast particularly pivots around classical music. How does classical music play into your listening? I have always had a big thing for classical music and a sort of natural pull towards it. I did A-level music at school or equivalent in Australia. And I remember my music teacher when we were composing, I was saying, well, can you do this? Can you do this? And he'd say, well, if Bach did it, you can do it. Because Bach's principles are... Not that that's classical as Baroque, but Bach's 
uh, <laughs> Bach's uh, um, in, basically invented the laws of harmony, or not invented them, but set them down, laid them down as we know them, well, in a Western way, I suppose. So then you have to look through Bach to see if you could find a precedent. And he told us later that what you learn searching through Bach, looking for precedent, is more than anything he could have ever taught us. So I, you know, I've I've always just had a natural draw to it. I remember the first flatmates I ever had used to complain that I was always blaring out classical or Baroque music because they were all kind of, you know, young, you know, 19, 20 year olds who wanted to be uh, playing pop and rock. And uh, one of my flatmates was into jazz but everyone was like, my God, you know. And yeah, if I'm really feeling the need for communion meditation, the slow movement of the Emperor Concerto will immediately put me into a place that I need to be in. As far as contemporary composers who deal in a classical style, Isabel Waller-Bridge, who's a friend of mine, she is just a phenomenal composer. I feel her work is very surgical, like it really buries down deep inside of you. And I love her scores. She's done the scores for so many wonderful television shows. She did an episode of War and Peace. I know that she's done she's done all sorts and um, plays and things like that. But um, she might be best known because her sister, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, made Fleabag. Uh, all of the evocative, all of the evocative choral music that played into Fleabag's relationship with the hot priest is just absolutely glorious. So where do you come into classical music? Where does it fit in your listening on a day-to-day basis? I mean, it's a mood thing, isn't it? Mm. If I were going out getting ready for a party, I probably wouldn't put classical music on. But then who's going out getting ready for a party in (laughs) 2020? Uh, If I was looking, staring out the window, looking at the the autumn leaves uh, getting more golden, Mm. then absolutely I will uh, put some Mozart on. And uh, that is very much more, very much more the vibe of October 2020. Uh, It is absolutely what's happening. I really love Mozart. I really, really love opera. And I really love Mozart's operas. There's just something, it's almost beyond music. It almost transcends music. It's, it can absolutely lift me into a place that it's almost like a wave. It can take me on a wave and make, pick me up and, and put me down. What I find fascinating about Mozart's operas though, is that because a friend of mine was like, Oh, I've never been to the opera and I'm too intimidated. And I was like, you have no business being intimidated by opera, certainly not comic opera because it's, have you seen the plots? <laughs> it's like somebody has taken the plot of an episode of Two and a Half Men and then asked God themselves to write the score. This this glorious... I, so he, I took him to see Cozy Van Tutti because it was directed... He's a comedian and it was directed by a mutual friend of ours called Faina McDermott, uh, who comedians know because he often does the comedy stories with the comedy store players because his he collaborates a lot with Lee Simpson, who's a comedy store player. So he, he, you know, he has done lots of broad, funny, silly, whimsical comedy, but he, his theatre company improbable that he has with Lee also does lots of experimental, fabulous in the moment type theatre and he directs opera. And so I took 
uh, this friend to see Cozy Fantuti that Phelim had directed. Before that, I sent him a CD of my favourite English translation, Cosi Fantuti, that's conducted by St. Charles Macaras. An Aussie. An Australian, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a very accessible, glorious recording. And I sent a breakdown of what happens in the plot, but in a way that was, you know, from one comedian to another, how ludicrous <laughs> and farcical it all was. And what the mechanisms are of keeping people out from opera. Why do people like to keep people out of things? Uh, people pay thousands of pounds a year to belong to private members clubs, not based on who's allowed in, but on who's, who's not allowed in. So you'll pay double for a cocktail because some people aren't allowed to drink it. And opera can be like that sometimes. It's like, oh, well, only we understand it. It's like, no, anyone with ears can understand it. Anyone who's, you, you don't have to have fallen in love to understand it because the stories are implausible and ridiculous. And the people make bad decisions for no good reason and people put on fake moustaches and other people mistake them for people they're not. It's ridiculous. But the the I think what the music does is it lifts you into the feeling of love or loss or confusion or flirtation and it takes you to the places that the plot frankly can't and doesn't. And so as long as you can come and be in the spirit of that and be present and read read what's happening before you go. I say always say that. I say with anything like that, with opera, ballet, find out what you're watching. So you're not sitting there trying to decode it and thinking, oh my God, everyone's so much cleverer than me. They're not. They've seen this before. They know what happens. They're not cleverer than you. And when you, you're relaxed about what's happening and you go, ah, oh, this must be the bit where this happens, you can then just really enjoy the music and enjoy the emotional transactions. And I really like doing that because I think I had access in my house from when I was a child because my mother loved opera and my mother loved classical music. So it was on. And when that's normal to you, it doesn't feel like a place or a space that you're not allowed in. And we weren't taken to operas, but we were taking, taken to the ballet and we were taken to light operas. We were taken to the Mikado and things like that. So I f didn't feel it was a place I wasn't allowed. So when I first got to London, I didn't have any money to go to the opera. But I, what I worked out was that they didn't check your tickets at interval. So I would call up just before curtain up and say, oh, do you have any tickets left if I'm just around the corner? And they say, oh, yes, we've got plenty of tickets left. And then I'd say, oh, and I'm meeting a friend at interval. What time's interval? And they'd tell me. So at interval, I'd turn up and uh, just go file back in with everyone else. And then as everyone sat down, just look for a spare seat and sit in it. And I thought, well, I'm not costing anyone anything because the opera's happening whether I'm sitting here or not. And one night, this was at the Coliseum, it was deflated mouse. And I came in, everyone sat down. I was like, oh my God, there's no seats, there's no seats, there's no seats. And I thought, always go to the authorities because if you go to, if you run away, you look like you're doing something wrong. If you walk up to the authority, you look like you must be in the right place at the right time. So I went, walked up to the usher and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Have I left it too late to go to the loo? Because I just realised I need, really need to go to the loo. And he went, mm, well, you can, but I'd have to put you in a private box. <laughs> Because you wouldn't be allowed back in otherwise because you couldn't you disturb the... I said, oh, that's fine. Thank you very much. I'll absolutely, absolutely. So I went to the loo and then he put me in a private box, like a queen with grapes in a private box. I was like, this is living. <laughs> um, and I put that story 
gave it to somebody else, gave it to a character. I put that story in my movie, Say My Name, which came out uh, last year. Um, that story is immortalised in my movie. <laughs> uh, so I remember it so well, just that moment of him going, oh, no, go and sit in your seat. And me going, oh, no, what am I going to do? I don't have a seat. <laughs> Being put in a whole box I could stretch out. It was fantastic. Jolly good. And what were your first interactions with music? What was the piece that you first discovered as a child? Or you mentioned that your mum played opera and classical music. I think my first, uh, I, the first time I remember wanting to hear a piece of music over and over again was Packerbell's Canon. And I think there's something about the intervals that's, it's very gently taking you somewhere, very sweet and very comforting. I mean, some classical music is downright aggressive. I mean, Wagner, I just can't be doing with at all. I don't like it. Um, and some is, of course, wonderful and dramatic and phenomenal like Beethoven. And of course, this is all subjective. Some people will hate Beethoven and love Wagner. But um, but for me, you know, as a child, yes, these very gentle intervals and this very precise but very pleasant rhythm and very even tempo. And I think that was quite comforting to me as a child. And I wanted to hear that over and over again. Did you grow up in a musical household? Yes, my sister played the piano. I wasn't allowed to play the piano because my mother thought it was her thing and I did drama lessons. I did do ballet, jazz and tap for a couple of years and then I did drama. But yes, there was always music in the house and I could do a little bit. I could play duets with her sometimes if they were very, very simple. Uh, And then I, at high school, was offered the opportunity to learn to play the flute or or another instrument. I chose the flute. I think there was a flute available. and a flute, Yeah, a flute spot (laughs) available in the teaching. And they said, do you want to play the flute? I was like, yeah. My best friend, Philippa, played the clarinet and I played the flute. And we were both in the school band and we played some classical music, but mostly big band type stuff. You know, TV themes and Christmas carols at Christmas, that kind of stuff. We used to go to shopping centres and play. I loved that. Really, really loved that. The thing about being in an orchestra or a band is that you are... Uh, it's the same as being in a choir. You are part of something much larger. You'll never be able to make that much music and that kind of music yourself. Never, never, never. But you could be part of it. And there's something, it's like uh, what an Indian woman once said to me, described to me as the om that connects all humanity. She said to me, someone was arguing that yoga was cultural appropriation. And she said, I think that's diminishing yoga because it is obviously respect where it's come from and respect how it's done and that kind of thing. But she said, it is higher than culture. She said, don't diminish yoga to say it as part of my culture. It's a discovery. She's like, it's like pure maths. It's, it's the yom that connects all humanity. It's, it's higher than culture, which I thought was very interesting. I feel like that about being part of an orchestra or a band or a choir. It's something like the yom that connects all humanity. It's this feeling of, all of us creating a vibration together and the energy in that vibration, which is somewhere between us and also being sent out beyond us is something uniquely human. Mm. And your, your family later became Jehovah's Witness. And I'm so interested with the interplay between religion and music. Oh, their music is terrible. Oh my God, their music is so bad. (laughs) Well, they won't employ any proper composers. It's just sort of whoever's a Jehovah's Witness, but they don't, they like everyone to drop out of school or certainly not go to uni. They've changed their policy a bit on that, but only for very practical things. Mm. If you said you wanted to go to university and study music, they'd say absolutely not. Um, Children tend not to have, we did because we became Jehovah's Witnesses when I was an adolescent, but most Jehovah's Witness kids wouldn't do piano or flute or anything or dancing after school because they should be focusing on Jehovah. So there's a lot of meetings to go to and door knocking to do. So people don't have time and resources and bandwidth to do it. They don't cultivate 
composers, like the Mormons, I, listen, I don't want to be a Mormon either. Like, you know, friends of mine who were Mormons are like, no, that's no. But if you go and do the door knocking for two years, you'll, they'll then put you through college and they even have their own colleges, I think. That wasn't the case with the Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's just like whoever can read music. So the music were absolute dirges, terrible, terrible music. I do remember when our kingdom hall was, we you had to build your own kingdom hall um, when, and we'd get together on the weekend and go to the, down to this building site. When the building hall's finished, you dedicated it because there was no consecration or anything like that. It's, it's not a very, it's a pretty corporate religion. It's not a very sort of woo-woo religion. There's no candles and chanting or anything like that. It's extremely business-like in a way. But you did have a dedication of the kingdom hall. And they, for that, I mean, this is so one-off memory. They probably wouldn't do this now. It was very unique, but um, we had a choir and we sang We Thank You, Jehovah, which was one of the slightly less dirty songs in four-part harmony. That was a big deal. I remember I was alto. I remember being a big part of that and that being very exciting. And I used to actually play flute at the Kingdom Hall. It was There was a pianist and then I'd play flute and someone else would play, play something else. I can't remember, I think of trumpet. But then as it went on, they liked, they preferred recorded music because that's they're very big on unity. It's like we record the song, then we know how it's played. Everything's the same. It, everything's the same. It's like a McDonald's franchise. And I went back to a meeting um, with much triggering, um, not uh, in around 2015, for a reason. I was trying to help someone who wanted to get out, get out. And I was, I felt very, very triggered being in the hall. It was a very odd experience, but um, I didn't recognise any of the songs. Mm. And they changed them all. And and they, they are, I think they're, as a sort of franchised religion in a weird way, they're not, they're not very smart about that kind of thing. They have no, there's, they don't understand their sentimentality in music. And that if I'd heard some of the old songs, there might have been a bit of a, oh, I remember this from my adolescence. There's no, I really do mean this, there's no, cult, it's devoid of culture, that religion. It's, you know, if I go back, I was raised Church of England before we became Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'll still get a certain sense of, I'm an atheist now, but um, but have great respect for people with faith. You know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who is who is down on faith. Um, I don't have any, and I find it hard to understand why people have it, but at the same time, I get it and I get what it can be useful for. And also nobody knows anything. Who knows? There could be a huge rabbit made of antimatter in the sky who's controlling everything like a puppet with like a puppet master. I don't know. Uh, we can't say what isn't there as much as we can't say what is there. I will s- still feel sentimental about hymns and choral music. I love choral music. I sang with the choir when I went to Oxford. Mm. Yeah. I sang with the Trinity College Choir. I was at Oxford for three years and I sang every single Sunday and you'd get free dinner at uh, supper at um, at the college afterwards when you sang, which I always did. It was great fun. What was the musical life like in Oxford? Because it's still, to this day, is incredibly rich. What was it like for you going into that, having been slightly deprived? Well, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I loved singing with the choir and I loved all the hymns. I loved all the choral music. And I actually got married at Trinity College Oxford because I wanted the choir. Yeah. I mean, years afterwards, so it was different people, obviously, but I wanted that choir in that, in that, that choir in that chapel, that Elizabethan chapel, and it was absolutely glorious. So although I was, I'm not religious, I was allowed to get married there because I'd sung with the choir for so long. Um, And it was, my college was actually Harris Manchester College, but we didn't have choir, so I, it was, you know, around the corner. 
Um, but no, I absolutely loved it. And I loved the, and I just loved how much music there was in Oxford. And I loved the bells and I loved the, the choirs and the, the opportunity and the musical theatre and students would put on operas. You know, it was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I was so lucky to go there. Do you see a lot of live music when you were there? Yes. Yeah. So what, we were around the corner from the Hollywell Music Room. So I'd walk around there every day and there was often a string quartet or some kind of recital going on there. It was just glorious, just absolutely lovely because you could just pop in. It was always free. You could just walk in and somebody was singing something beautiful. What, what would you say is the best concert you've ever been to? I don't know if this counts as a concert, but it felt like one. When I first came to London, I used to love the Messiah. I wasn't really supposed to go and see the Messiah. I was a Jehovah's Witness, but all of the words were from the Bible. So I remember going, I can't see why it's wrong. You had to queue up around the cathedral to go in and it was free and you could go in and see Handel's Messiah. And I'd never been in a cathedral like that before. You know, in Australia, you don't, you know, you have cathedrals, but nothing like that. Just the majesty of that music, the size of that music, the size and the rise of the Messiah is something special. And have you, are you still an opera goer and a live music attendee? Are you, have you missed that in the last year or so? I am. I am. Uh, the last opera I went to was, I think there was a gala night that I was very kindly invited to at the ENO, which was just fantastic. Then that was it. I went on tour and then when I came back, everything was closed down. What, what would you particularly be looking forward to restarting when life gets back to normal? If everything was on again tomorrow, mm. I'd go and see a fantastic West End musical. Which and one? And then I'd, oh, what <laughs> haven't I seen? But I never got to see there's something about Jamie. Oh, I think that's meant to be brilliant. Uh, I'd like to see that. I never got to see Kinky Boots. Um, and then I would have a look at what was happening at the Royal Opera House and I would have a look at what was happening at the e and and I would uh, roll the dice, try and find some affordable tickets. And I would go more often now because I think I, now it's been taken away. I think when you live in London, I'm in central London, I'm in Camden Town, you know, we're 10 minutes from the West End, we're 20 minutes from the South Bank. So it's really easy to think, oh, I'll go next time or I'll go later or that production will come around again. And now this has really reminded us it might not. So go when you can go. I went to, I've never been to, ever been to the last night of the proms, but the BBC had me cover it last year. It was really extraordinary, actually. There were some brilliant things in it, and I and I really enjoyed that much more than I thought I would because I it felt quite patriotic, jingoistic. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and there were moments for me that were like, oh. But what I was surprised by was that they were mostly the people around me were all German who'd all come especially for it. Most of the people there seemed to be from somewhere else, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> but in Union Jack waistcoats. And yeah. it was sort of, I guess, a bit like British people going to Oktoberfest and getting dressed up in in, uh, in traditional German dress and uh, dirndls and things. What did you make of the saga this year, all the conversation around it with Royal Britannia and <clears throat> all that discussion? Um, I, th- I think it's, I think kind of the least we can do is change the lyrics because we can't change the past. 
And what would you say is your kind of current musical obsession? Um, uh, Amrit Kaur, who's a brilliant new find in my life. She was brought to me by Cindy V to do the podcast and she uses a lot of world instruments and uh, Asian instruments and she uses them with a contemporary flourish or, you know, contemporary sense uh, feel. There is something of a classical tradition to it, but it's it's intertwined with something very contemporary and resonant and something for right now. And I'd really recommend anybody look her up, A-M-R-I-T-K-A-U-R. I think if you love classical music, there'll be lots in this that you will love. And also there'll be a little bit old and a little bit of new. Obviously, you're a serious champion of women in music. Are you someone that kind of digs into the history and kind of finds the female composers from history that might have been overlooked? Or do you prefer to kind of look at who's making incredible things now? I think I do. I love Errol and Wallen because she did the she did a, um, a podcast with us uh, last mm, year. Yeah. In fact, for the last night of the proms, because um, one of her pieces was was in it. And she is a really super talent and such a charming, wonderful woman. love Jamie Barton we interviewed her too and she is this glorious soprano with a a, a soul of gold uh, who can elevate and lift everything she sings and make it sound so contemporary also on the show I had last year Danielle Denise and she invited me to Glyndebourne where I had never been before and it was fantastic and we got to have dinner there and we saw her in in uh, Cinderella and it was just glorious. And it was a very feminist contemporary twist on Cinderella. I really enjoyed it. She has a um, a voice like an angel. So I've, I've been very lucky through the podcast to be able to connect with some contemporary women who are really making waves and, are, and have other intersections of diversity to their identity, which they bring to the music. We had Joy Crooks come on because we were part of the Women of the World Festival and she was, you know, we were offered her and we heard she was brilliant. And she blew me away. Uh, she, her voice is absolutely incredible. Um, she's a young uh, British South Asian woman who, whose music speaks to her heritage and is also uniquely London in, a, in its own way. It's just absolutely brilliant. And she is brilliant and she is a lovely person. So I listen to a lot of her now. Um, I listened to a girl of Grace Petrie, who I discovered through the podcast because somebody recommended that she be on it. And I, I'm often throwing shows together at the last minute. And I have a booker now who, you know, manages to put all of this into some kind of, you know, uh, semblance of order, of order, Rachel Craftman. She's brilliant. But back then I was just, you know, winging in. And I knew I had Rachel Paris on, uh, who does comedy songs. 
And I knew I wanted to get Roxanne on, Roxanne with three X's, who was the lead in Suffragetten, our, um, the hip hop musical we were and still are developing uh, about the suffragettes. And I, someone said, oh, you should have Grace Petrie on, just coincidentally. And I looked at her on YouTube and she's a, a, a lesbian folk protest singer. And I was like, oh, she's right up our street. Love her. She looked really good. But I didn't really know. I just looked at one or two songs. And she came on and she sang for the first time. It was an exclusive, uh, a song called Black Tie Tonight. And it was, a, uh, uh, she says, a letter to her or a postcard to her year 11 self when, when she was 16, I guess, in her year 11 hell. And I guess having to go to a school dance dressed up in a dress. And she has you know, very masculine gender expression. She loves to wear suits now and, you know, she wears she she wears black tie out to a fancy party and that's what the song's about but it's about acceptance and this amazing lyrics that she says um it, it basically uh talking to her future self saying that there'll come a time when you won't worry what they say on the labels on the doors you'll figure out what's yours and it's so moving and i was like crying on the stage we were sitting on the stage watching her and i felt like I was like, oh God, why am I crying so much? I look ridiculous. And I looked to the left and Rachel Paris was just sobbing. And we just looked at each other and oh my God. It was so moving. And the audience gave it a standing ovation. So long, we had to take a break. There was no point like going on. And after that, that sh- so many of the Guilty Famous fans bought the song off iTunes that it became this, you know, quite a, and I'm sure Grace's fans as well, who knew her otherwise, it became a real hit for her. And so we have her back on whenever we can. She toured Australia and New Zealand with us. Um, so I listen to a lot of her, her songs, especially if I'm feeling angry or the need to get activated. So, yeah, I found a lot of brilliant women. Uh, last night we had Rizzo on the show, uh, who is just glorious. Uh, if you don't know Rizzo, look her up at Rizzo.loves. Cabaret artist, sings very funny, very sultry, phenomenal songs. Just, just She's just a genius. You know, so that we, we're so lucky to have found so many different brilliant singers through the show. Oh, Boomy Thomas, who came on because the, the, um, the government were trying to deport her, even though she was born in Glasgow because her parents hadn't naturalised her. And so we, all the Guilty Feminists, she was played for us at the Royal Albert Hall and all the Guilty Feminists um, wrote in into the Home Office and said, no, don't think so. And uh, she's now, thank God, got indefinitely to remain, I hope, uh, in part too, because the Guilty Feminists embarrassed the Home Office by writing to them. I'm sure there were other factors. She probably had a brilliant lawyer as well, but we did, you know, Amnesty were backing her, I remember, and we did, like, get behind it. Because, and she's incredible. She's done a lot of our shows now. Um, so they're, they're all women I listen to frequently, uh, have got me through the lockdown. And if you're trying to introduce someone who had no understanding of classical music, what's one piece that you'd drag them along to see? The one piece that I did drag my friend along to see was Cosi Vantuti because it's a funny plot you can explain and it just I think it just does dissipate that intimidation. And I would recommend to anybody who feels... Well, I'm not sure about this, or anybody who wants to get a friend involved and thinks, oh, please come with me, you'd really love it, is that you tell them, you explain by blow by blow how ridiculous the plot is and how way below this person's intelligence it is. It's like, it's so stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Now, how can you be intimidated by that? And now the music's just really, it just makes you feel really lovely and lifted up and 
it's beautiful. And there's times when you feel like crying, times when you feel like laughing, and you're going to feel really like you've almost had a meditative experience, an invigorating meditative experience. And play them a bit of it and go, play them a really fun bit of it and go, do you like that? Okay, I'm going to tell you the story. Strap in, it's ridiculous. It's it's much more farcical than most most episodes of Frasier. <laughs> you cannot be intimidated by this. So that's that's where I would start. Selection. Thank you so much. Thank you, Freya. It's been absolutely lovely. I've really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of it by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and in various digital formats, or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest musical happenings, thousands of reviews, and a good deal more. Music